want to begin this evening's talk with a poem from Mark Doty, kind of a prologue. It's called Golden Retrievals. Fetch, balls and sticks capture my attention seconds at a time. Catch, I don't think so. Bunny, tumbling leaf, a squirrel who's, oh joy, actually scared. Sniff the wind, then I'm off again. Muck, pond, ditch, residue of any thrillingly dead thing. And you? Either you're sunk in the past, half-hour walk, thinking of what you can never bring back, or else you're off in some fog concerning tomorrow. Is that what you call it? my work to unsnare time's warp and woof, retrieving my haze-headed friend, you, this shining bark, a Zen master's bronzy gong, calls you here entirely now. Bow wow, bow wow. So this uh, talk will be my attempt to bark, (laughs) to call you here now. The other night, I tried to highlight uh, in uh, my talk uh, the difference between our direct experience, that invitation of practice to touch life very immediately and very directly, to see the difference between that direct experience and the version of that experience that plays through our mind, or the version of ourselves that plays through our mind. Often the the version that is evaluating and measuring, as we've been saying, the version that's kind of caught up in a profound drama about ourselves, the sometimes called the how am I doing story. As Carol would say, it's all about me. But this is not what we experience directly. So I tried to highlight that, and I used the poem or the passage from Henry Audubon where he said, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, to believe the bird. And it was a reminder that, uh, that the bird, or really that you could say the, our sense of just ourselves, a sense of basic okayness, of sufficiency, of enoughness, of just beingness, of existence, uh, is really just a, a direct experience away, a split second and to begin to to trust that, the more immediate experience, so different from the field guidebook. And I've experimented a lot with this, and I've experimented a lot with this with groups before, in inviting people to, inviting yogis, others, to just to stop for a moment, come out of of the tangle of of our personal story as as deep and rich as our stories are, as hard won they are, as meaningful as they are, as important it is that we can share them and that we can feel the the um, resonance with each other's stories and each other's lives. But to step out of that, to find something that's very precious, uh, that cannot be found through the travels in our personal story. And dropping that sense of, of any kind of story in a moment, we, just, we taste ourselves in a way that can't easily be described. But also, often what dawns in the, that simple moment after that last idea has passed and before the next one arises, there's often a sense of, at least anecdotally, there's often a sense of peace 
sense of ease, a sense of freedom, a sense of openness, a sense of not being bound. And really, it's, it was a, a difference between being uh, absorbed in an internal world or an agenda or knowing it. Just that simple moment, freedom so close such a reminding us of the power of, of mindfulness once that knowing is present. And if nothing more, if not something great and wonderful and vast, at least what we come face to face with is the fact that there really is or are only six experiences happening. Our whole life is the succession, you could say, one way of talking about it, and I'll get into that a little more, is it's just successive moments of, sit, of touching, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, hearing. It's beautiful sitting here just before the talk. Just, just the simple appearances of sound. Nobody hearing, just sounds being heard. What happened to all the, at least all the drama that went through my mind today writing a Dharma talk? Where is it now? So I ended the talk the other night by sharing the, uh, one of my favorite poems from uh, Rumi called Tending Two Shops. and. Uh, I, essentially, the, the heart of the poem is, is um, live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere, and you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth, constantly between these worlds of our story and then the suchness of, of this moment. But in the poem, he says, try to close the one that's a fearful trap. Getting always smaller, as Winnie so beautifully reminded us when we get caught in our agendas. Always getting smaller, checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. This is the inspiration to keep waking up, keep waking up out of the to see the difference between the field guide book and what's really happening. Keep waking up. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You're the free swimming fish. A Tibetan teacher named Nosho Kempo speaks to this, these two shops, where he reminds us in saying, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought. Like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. Winnie so beautifully described how at least I'm just projecting or paraphrasing or translating, uh, how we can so easily be be beaten by karma and neurotic thought. How without mindfulness, without that sense of presence, without waking up, how easily our, we can incarnate, take birth into our agendas, and how they become the filters on our experience and how they, how they create a sense of, uh, of something wrong, of, of a feeling of contentiousness, a feeling of not home. And I found it, uh, I know many of you did, as you reported in interviews today. I don't want to embarrass Winnie, but I found it so, such a beautiful light shined on this, such a common human experience, especially for meditators, these common agendas. And this can be transposed into any part of our lives. And it was remarkable today, 
as people reported how much they enjoyed Winnie, enjoyed her talk, how it just so much reminded me. <laughs> Winnie and her talk are one. <laughs> It was a beautiful moment, and it was so uh, apparent to me that shining that light on those, on those tendencies of mind, whether you discovered them yourself with mindfulness or whether they were pointed to in the talk, how that brought a sense of, uh, it normalized them, it brought a sense of ease. Uh, and it reminded me of a, a poem I shared earlier in the retreat I think it's Afi's poem. He says, how did the rose ever open its heart to this world and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we remain too frightened. So another reminder of the, the light being shined on ourselves, uh, whether it's someone else pointing us that way or not. Such a relief, such a, uh, a waking up. She kept saying that when we, are, when we get caught in our, um, our agendas, that uh, I think she repeated several times, but I may be imagining this too. And she says, you lose. You will lose. And it kept reminding me of this uh, poem from, from Rumi where he's, he begins it by saying, failure is the key to the kingdom within, or queendom within, we'll say tonight. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. <laughs> Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring, and finally I have no will. Beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought. The good news is, in that, for, in that poem, rest in natural great peace, that we can discover as we encourage this uh, resting, this, this knowing, we can discover that peace is quite natural to us. Again and again, that the gap widening so that we, we do come out of the, slowly, slowly come out of the tangle of, our, of me and mine. This is the trajectory of the practice, again, from that narrow vortex to that wider ring of being. It's the same one that happened for the Buddha. He started by experimenting with what is it that makes us happy? What is it that brings happiness to us? And he, as all of us do, have explored all of the enormous number of ways that we can feel pleasure. The pleasure of solitude, the pleasure of togetherness, the pleasure of all the senses, they're really delicious. The pleasure of, um, the pleasure of hearing the Dharma, all the, lots of things that give us tremendous pleasure. But he began to see that entering into the narrow agenda of pleasure as our devotion produced not only the pleasure when we get what we want, but also produced a residue of dissatisfaction, a residue of, um, of dependency, what he called lokia sukha, comfort that depends, happiness that depends on satisfying our hunger, otherwise known as dependent happiness, happiness that depends on getting from point A to point B, conditioned happiness. Conditions have to be a certain way to get there. You have to get whatever it is you want. I have to get whatever I want in order to be happy. This he called lokia sukha, worldly happiness. Basically, it covers everything. But he also, this is also translated as uh, the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery, subsumed under the umbrella of dukkha, 
unreliable. And he even found that about the pleasures of the agenda of uh, more super mundane happiness, the, kind of the happiness of concentration, great states of mind, as useful and as marvelous as they are, as much as they are springboards to, uh, to our confidence and deepening of our practice, when they are made our devotion, they become the, the corruptions of insight and, we, and they, they become, uh, we become slaves to them. Wanting to, as Winnie shared last night, wanting to recreate that experience that we had before. Because we've all touched that. This is, uh, because each time we enter into that, that narrow world of what I want to happen, whatever your cherished desire is, whatever is your moving, I call it the moving end of the rainbow, whatever you think that when you get it, you, then you can relax. Of course, the hidden aim is to relax, so why don't we just start with relaxing? The hidden aim is peace. Why don't we just start with peace? But nevertheless, once we enter into that misplaced faith in something that is not here, that is not now, that depends on conditions, we have literally entered into a trance. We have entered into the trance of time. And that's what I would like to speak a little more about tonight. Just one simple example, a poem. First I was dying to finish high school and start college. Then I was dying to, wait, did I get the first? Yeah. Then I was dying to finish college and start working. Then I was dying to marry and have children. Then I was dying for my children to grow old enough for school so I could return to work. Then I was dying to retire. Now I'm dying. And suddenly I realize I forgot to live. Well, before I go into the trance of time, it's a, it should be, re, I think it's important to remind us that as the Buddha's mind, and I think I mentioned this in the early part of the retreat, as the Buddha's mind withdrew from its devotion to this more unreliable kind of sense of well-being and happiness, he, his mind opened. It relaxed. It stopped grabbing, stopped pushing away, and it opened, and, it, uh, and in a flash of insight, he realized at first just a glimpse, but then a quite profound understanding. He realized what he called lokutra sukha, a sense of well-being that is unconditioned, unborn, un, unassailable, uh, the often described as the happiness of freedom, often described as um, unstuck from the world. And I think Carol translated for you the world as just the world of name and form, all the, the, the various changing conditions that we deal with. Not the world out there, but the world as it presents itself in our consciousness. Unstuck from the world, beyond the power and influence, happiness um, of freedom. What happens when we, in your own experience, step out of that, um, that world of lokiya sukha, or worldly happiness? You may think, well, I haven't done that yet. But you do do that. And what all of us have been pointing to in every moment that you're, that that knowing is present every moment that you wake up to where you are. The moment when the past is not something that can be found, where the future is obviously unborn. What's that like? What is it like? So Lokutra Sukha is right there, is right here, I should say. 
but what we have much more practice at. As one of my teachers said, 35 million years of practice is entering into that, that um, narrow trans or, or world of, of time where we imagine ourselves to be somebody who's going from the past where we came from, passing through the present on our way to the future that will be better. Just like that person in the poem, dying to get from here to there. Maybe already you've been, you're dying to go to sleep tonight. You're waiting to the end of the talk. You may even be hostage to whether this is helpful to you or not, whether it will be <laughs> waiting to see if there's some nugget in it. Notice if there's any kind of anticipation or any kind of way that in your mind you've constructed the, the world of time. The whole concept of time as we experience it in our mind is just another facet, another aspect of the world that, of, of ego, the world of self. It's another part of the field guidebook. It really speaks to the difference that we can all begin to taste and which you've all, that you've all described countless times in your meetings with me and all of us, the difference, the movement from the world of concepts to that direct reality. So we've, we've moved with our body. It starts with our body, my body, that relative understanding, something we, the imagined we have called a body. Isn't that an interesting way of framing? I have a body as though there's someone over here who has a body over here. But nobody's ever seen that one who has the body. But nevertheless, this is the way that our mind frames these matters. But in a very organic way, we have moved from the world of my body to there then just being a body. We invite you using the language, just feel the body as the body. Settle the attention in the body, put the body in your mind, put your mind in your body. All these wonderful words that keep reminding us of the relative truth that my body is not your body, your body is not my body, we have bodies, <laughs> we're somebody. God, that reminds me of the poem. This is a little bit of a digression. <laughs> Everybody, you've heard this. Everybody wants to be somebody. Nobody wants to be nobody. But if that somebody could just be nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. <laughs> anyway. But with our bodies, getting back to the body, we've moved from that my body to body to then discovering this, this world. We can't even call it a world what we can call in our direct experience is this field of sensations. The, the winds blowing, the streaming, the stabbing, the burning, the itching, the searing, the squeezing, the coolness, the warmth, the temperature, the vibrating, the pulsing. Exploring the direct experience cuts right through this notion that there is a body. Body seems like such a gross approximation of what the direct experience is. This underlying world, this word body, solid thing, noun, the underlying experience, much more verbish, verbish much more streaming, much more in complete flux. And by this time, the direct experience, moving to more and more subtle understanding of our direct, our direct 
a real experience of life, un less felt, less filtered by concepts, is you can't, one can't even say in the absolute sense that we're a human. Another abstraction. So it begins slowly to cut through the story of me as it pertains to our body. And it works the same with mindfulness of breathing. So if we really look at it in the absolute relative time, there's a breath that begins and a breath that ends. And I'm breathing, and sometimes I breathe short, sometimes I breathe long, sometimes rough, sometimes smooth. And the breath is, uh, you can see a lot about the changing nature of things. But what do we really experience? That whole way of framing it is through the lens of the field guide book, the lens of time. What we really experience is that unfolding present, only now, flashing sensations, points of sensations, no breath, no time. So it hints, even this experience, such a basic experience, keeps pointing to what is beyond the conventional uh, use that we, of time, of there being a past, of there being a present. Where does that begin? And where does that end? Or there being a future. Anyone ever seen one? So when we talk about the world of, of our breath, our body, we're talking about ourselves. And a lot of what we think of as knowing ourselves is really more knowing about ourselves. And what the potential of our understanding and our practice is to know ourselves directly. So we can endlessly know about ourselves, and boy, do you get to know about yourself on retreat uncovering all those very subtle psychological patterns, the more gross and obvious ones, the details of our life situation, the contents of our minds, all of our conditioning, the, all the unbidden experiences that are the fruit of our, of our life, all the embarrassing things about us that get judged very quickly, the things that we have shame about, the ignobling things, the, the gratifying things, the, all the things about ourselves. This is about ourselves. This is not you. This is your story. Where is it now? The content of your story the content of your life, all of that coming and going, bound in time, rising and changing, moving from past to future, the way that we frame it. But where is it now? So that we see that all that we usually, all the ways that we usually define ourselves, things we identify with, our perceptions, our experience, what we do, what we think, what we feel. Think this is us, but as, uh, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, when you think or say, my life, you're not referring to the life that you are, but you're referring to the life that you have or think you have. This is what we know about ourselves. All the measurements, how high, how low, like the, the shop of the comparisons, the how am I doing, am I, getting, am I getting better? All very innocent parts of the drama of the imagined me, the ego, the self-idea that is, that is uh, sincerely longing for relief. But this is not, this is the contents of our experience. This is not 
what or who we are beyond the contents that we can't find right now. So what is outside the realm of con concepts or con the content of our experience? What do we discover in, when we step out of time? Tony Packer says, pure awareness. Which she describes as the silence of all habitual efforts to get someplace. It's the absence of any sense of me in time. All the practices, traditions point to this realization, this distinction between knowing ourselves directly and knowing about ourselves. As Dujam Rinpoche put it, and this is the person I borrowed the, the basic um, practice of, of, um, seeing, of attempting to check out what is beyond our, um, our ideas of ourselves, where he says, after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises, is there not a kind of vivid clarity? He calls a bare freshness without necessarily anything to see. He says, ho, oh, this is awareness. essence of mind. And when, we, when we touch this simple moment, it's often, a, again, anecdotally, a sense of, as Nisargadatta put it, the contrast of, of this direct experience. He says, as long as we believe or that we need something or to be someone to make us happy, we should also believe in its absent, we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its belief. This is the story of me. Pleasure is a distraction for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. Try that on for a moment. It really doesn't go with our, our view about ourselves. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of all sadhana is to reach a point when this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy to do, for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in nothingness, an emptiness of all content, True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. What is independent, uncreated, timeless, and changeless, and yet ever new and fresh is beyond the mind. When the mind thinks of it, the mind dissolves and only happiness remains. Now that's Nisargadatta's description, much more earthy description, I think of from Thoreau, who touched this bare freshness, this simplicity, and, and out of him came a, a song or a cry. He says, I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. 
It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches, for no run on my bank can drain it, for my wealth is not possession, but enjoyment of being. So Dujim doesn't just leave us with the, with the good news, <laughs> but actually the so-called bad news is actually the good news. As you see, it, everything gets used in the service of waking us up. But he says we don't stay in this place of open awareness. Isn't it true that a thought suddenly arises. And if this thought, as you've probably had you know, thousands of them, if it's recognized, it's recognized as just an appearance and awareness, inseparable, no problem whatsoever. But if it goes unrecognized, as it does for most of us, most of the time, that one thought spreads out into what he calls ordinary thinking, which he also calls the chain of delusion. Because it's at that point that we hypnotically are born into the world of time. Literally a split second of knowing it or being caught in it is the beginning of time, the end of time. And once we enter that world of time, it, it, it engages in a, in a major construction project, the construction project of me, but really the construction project of me in time. And each of us, as that, as that fragile, thought-based identity emerges, that fragility generates, or vulnerability generates, the deep longing to be happy. And even as seekers, so-called seekers, who've actually recognized, who know if, not just intellectually, but maybe even some direct experience that, as they say, as they use in some traditions, that you've heard this expression, the seeker and the sought are one. Ever hear that expression? Seeker and the sought are one. We all know that what we're searching for is really ourselves be home. But yet, there is such a tendency, such a, a misperception that I can't find that here, the only place I am, have ever been. Can't believe as you can tell that I, today I did a little perusing of Eckhart Tolle, who's such, written such beautiful things, wonderful things about uh, this whole concept of time. I found a little question and answer session where he, uh, the questioner said, I can't believe that I could ever reach a point where I'm completely free of my problems. And Eckhart Tolle says, you're right. You can never reach that point because you are at that point now. There is no salvation in time. You cannot be free in the future. Presence is the key to freedom. So you can only be free now. So even knowing that we can only be free now. I'll just tell you a little story. I, I, I don't think I've told too many groups this story, 
and I'm, I'm sometimes a little shy about telling it, but I was really, there was a point in my practice where I was really on fire. I wanted nothing else but to be, to, to know a sense of freedom. And from, I had gotten the, the very strong sense in my practice that, uh, just to use that expression again, that the seeker and the sought are one. I knew I was just looking for myself. But I heard about this teacher named H.W. Alpunja, and something lit up in me, even brighter. And I said, I'm heading, I'm heading to, to India. And I really, for the next three days after I decided to make this trip, I was manic. Just, <laughs> I couldn't even sleep. I was just so, and really, my life had just slowly organized itself. And I was in the midst of my daily life, but it was very much like being in the middle of a retreat where all I wanted was to, to know that reliable refuge, Lokutarasuka. Been through all kinds of meditative experience. So I made this trip and uh, went to meet him. And in my first conversation with him, he asked me, why have you come here? And I said, I know that the seeker and the sought are one. You'd think that that would make him uh, ask me again, why did I come here? (laughs) If you know so much. (laughs) I said, I know that the seeker and the sought are one but I've traveled halfway around the world to see you, so I must want something from you. And he looked at me, and James knows this look, he has this kind of impish look on his face with a little smile, and he says to me very succinctly, remove the seeker and remove the sought. And I'll just tell you a little piece of the story. That instant, I went completely unconscious. The next thing I knew, what brought me into consciousness was this laugh, a laugh that was not, it wasn't me or mine. It was a laugh from somewhere else. Who knows? But it brought me into consciousness, and it became so clear that these concepts of seeker and sought was the trance of time keeping me bound. And this happens every day to all of us in little ways when we characterize ourselves, identify ourselves as anything. Another experience I had with him, which he unpacked, and some of you have heard this story before, but where I got, in the next days with him, I got deathly, or not deathly, I got very ill and very uncomfortable and delirious and heat fevered and all the orifices were discharging and, and got, very, got very sick. So I think you can all relate to the feeling of being sick. But it wasn't just the experience, the direct experience of being sick, which of course has all its many difficult sensations and, and uh, unpleasantness and reactivity. I didn't realize that that sick had gotten a little bit embellished with the, we'll call it the trance of time, the trance of me. I became the sick person. And I went to see the teacher after a few days, Punjaji, and, and that was a whole drama of just getting to see him and walking, you know, dragging my body along the road and dealing with monkeys jumping out of the trees and <laughs> taking my bananas and, and just the whole thing was just a pain. And I went to see him and I was feeling a little better and he said, he asked me the first comment, he says, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me, and he said, where is sick? And it's not just cutesy. I couldn't find sick. And it just became clear that there was a difference between the direct experience of sick and the field guidebook that had built a whole identity around being sick, 
a whole sense of, and the weight of that. I didn't really appreciate that there's a weight to that. Not, there's both the weight of heaviness, a loss of vitality. There's also the state of waiting, the state of suspended well-being, the state that I, I won't be happy until I feel better. Bound in time. I'm in the trance of time. And instantly, as soon as I could not find six, sick, that the vitality returned. Still had lots of symptoms, but I was just lit up. It reminds me of a, a line from Sri Nisargadatta where he says, reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are merely mental. There is, right in the midst of, even in the midst of sickness, there is some kind of resource, some kind of light, some kind of, and really it's that light of attention. These small little time-bound identities are, they make us weary. We lose that sense of vitality. And our mind is easily tricked into the, into the agenda items and that sense of postponing. The sense of waiting, the sense of hoping, the sense of expecting. And the future that doesn't even exist becomes the source of of relief. Same teacher Nisargadatta says, once you understand that the false needs time. When he says false, he means the, the unreliable or the unreal. Once you understand that the false needs time, and what needs time is false, you are nearer to the reality, which is timeless, ever in the now. The real is always with you. You need not wait to be what you are. Only you must not allow your mind to go out of itself in search. He goes on, when you want something, ask yourself, do I really need it? And if the answer is no, then drop it. The questioner that this dialogue came from says, well, uh, must I not be happy? I may not need a thing, yet if it can make me happy, shouldn't I grasp it? And he sees through this time trance and he says, nothing can make you happier than you are. It's a trick. All search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. The only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of conscious being. the difference between direct experience and the trance of time. We talk about the present moment a lot in practice. It's really the center of everything. And when we talk about the present moment, it implies the reality of time. We talk about it as what's happening now. We talk about it as changing continuously. We experience it as changing continuously. We talk about it or experience it as having, um, as having, good, as having good moments, bad moments, pleasant moments, unpleasant moments, neutral moments. We experience time as the flow of these moments, a whole succession of moments. We talk about mind moments. This is from the teachings. But this is still the field guidebook. 
This is still an approximation. This is a description. If we look a little closer, very immediately, there are not many moments. Let's do it together. Let's look at it really closely. Just as with the concept of self, which we can't find when we look closely, when we look closely at time, we see there is only ever this moment. And there's not another moment that follows it. There's this moment that continues unfolding now, as Alan Watts calls it, eternal now. Life is always now. So when we rest, this is where our mindfulness rests, as T.S. Eliot calls, at the still point of the turning world. We see our entire life as an unfolding present. We have never, ever left the present. It is only in our imagination. Where is the past? Now. Where is the future? Now. Why does it appear that there are so many moments, so thousands and thousands of what we call mind moments? Because we mistake a sense of, of presence. This timeless present, this eternal now, with the contents of our experience what happens in this present moment. And that happening, that ever-changing experience, makes it appear that these are discrete moments. But in fact, there is only, life is only now. Even the Buddha's realization of the unborn, the unconditioned, speaks to this seeing through the, the trance or the concept of time, of past, present, future. Maybe you'll get a sense of it. He says, there is a field of experience beyond the entire field of matter, the entire field of mind, that is neither this world nor another world nor both, neither moon nor sun, this I call neither arising nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. Put in slightly more modern terms from Camus, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. Immovable. Where is time now? Where are the, where's the moment? Where does it begin and where does it end? Of course, we can't overlook the paradox of time. It's everywhere. This talk will last, hopefully not too long, <laughs> 50, so far 50 minutes, 54 minutes. It takes time to get through a talk. It took time to write the talk. It takes time to heal. And that's such a relief that time heals. It takes time to get from here to there. It takes time to build a practice, to build a life, a relationship. Everything takes time. Everything is subject to, to time. 
so much circumstantial evidence that there's time. But we only know it by inference. Directly, we don't experience time. Don't believe me, though. We only ever experience what's happening now. So as Douglas Harding puts it, we try to check things out, as he, his expression is, on present evidence, not by inference. And I don't know. I have not yet found time. But it's really useful to reflect on, even if it's by inference. This concept of time is very important. The, un- the knowledge of past, our past actions produce our present experience. Our present actions produce our future, our future uh, results. That it's very, a very useful concept in a relative sense. Every day, you know, at, in monasteries throughout the world, there is a refrain that goes on every day about time, anicca. We should all do it together. I'll do it once, and then we can do it together. Anicca vada sankara upadua yadamino upakituva niruchanti te sang vupasamo sukho Anicca vada sankara upadua yadamino upakituva niruchanti te sang vupasamo sukho We have to do it once more. It's against the rules to do it. Anicca vada sankara upadua yadamino upakituva niruchanti te sang vupasamo sukho Essentially, we'll do it in the English call and response. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. The fading of suffering. So the constant reminder of that which is bound in time, these bodies, these minds, that every one of us from the moment we're born, as one teacher put it, are sinking ships, that, that, uh, that any uh, pride that we have in youth will, will cause suffering, any pride in health will give way, any pride in life will ultimately have to be relinquished to do everything, as Ajahn Jha says, with a mind that lets go as a result of this wise reflection. He says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. So we can have a wise reflection on time, or we can become confused by time. And we can all see in, in our world's advertising that, that there is a kind of use of, of this fact of change in time, things coming and going, to, in fact, try to seduce us into seizing the moment. The one advertisement that I used to read many years ago and, uh, was said something like, buy a pioneer car stereo now, because someday you'll be dead. (laughs) We laugh at this, but yet there is sometimes it's very easy to be motivated. The the what's it called the bucket list, the things you want to do before you you die. There's a there's a way that we can be very much caught in the um, 
in the absorption in things that do not help us, do not really bring relief. And our mind can be in a constant state of becoming, even as we're dying. So the, oh boy. <laughs> this, is part, this is part one. I'll just briefly say that it can be especially useful in our practice to see the way that, because it is a concept, it is the way that we organize our lives. It has both a, a nature, organic way of expressing itself, but it also depends a lot on our perception because it's not absolute, it's relative, and it depends on the way that we view it. So, for example, we are at the two-week almost at the two-week point. How do you feel when I say that? That perception of time of two weeks, it may be, oh my God, two more weeks. Or I, can, I don't know if I can make it. Or oh, only two weeks. So depending on pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, we, our perception of time can really affect the way that we experience our process moment to moment. Or six weeks, or six weeks right? Some people, six weeks. Thank you. Uh, That's a beautiful thing. The longer, the better. I looked down at my notes, and I remembered, and I, I saw that I had written the line from that wonderful movie many years ago about the, with Jack Nicholson about the guy who went into the psychiatrist's office and looked at everybody sitting around, and he said, what if this is as good as it gets? <laughs> so depending on if we're actually... <laughs> try that on. What if we actually practice with that? with that sense of time. What if this is as good as it gets? Not being entranced by, it's going to get better, it's going to get better. What if this is as good as it gets? Reminds me, just the last thing I'll say, because I, half the talk will have to come another time. But several years ago, it was actually the year of, the, of, the great, um, of that great tsunami that happened in, um, in Asia. There was a, a Burmese tribe along the coast that was um, lived next door to, a, it, it was a kind of indigenous tribe that lived next door to a more acculturated Burmese tribe. And everyone in the acculturated tribe vanished. And this tribe called the Mokan uh, knew the ways of, of nature, were so in tune with the unfolding present that they knew what to do when the when the tsunami and the warnings, the, the Earth's warnings of, of the tsunami. And I was reading an article about them, and there were two words in the Mo that the Mokan tribe did not have in their vocabulary. They did not have the word when, and they did not have the word want. So see if in the next day or so, two, notice how many times your mind, first, how many times it comes up with the word when, on variations, how many times with the word want. Notice the reverberation. Notice the feeling. Notice what's happened. This is, shows us the impact of the concept of time on our mind. But the invitation, as we all know, is to step out of time. And we do this in each moment until, like the Buddha, we sit under the Bodhi tree. And rather than describe the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, I'd like to share a passage uh, about a nun named Tejitsu. Uh, and this is from a book called Women of the Way by Sally Til Tisdale, and it's a description of her awakening. Tejitsu saw that arising arose, abided and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything.
sit for another minute. beings experience life directly and know things as they are. Thank you for the long Endure your long enduring attention. We now have 24 minutes for walking practice. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>